worked. So, but you all didn't know you were watching live. <laughs> so there is an advantage if you can make it to come. Um, so let's, uh, let me take a moment to pray. Just, Lord, thank you so much for our time together this morning as a church family. Time for food afterwards, fellowship, to spend this day, this morning, into the early afternoon together with you, in the presence of our God and Savior, the Lord Jesus. I ask, Lord, that you'd help our focus now, just continue to be on you, to clear our minds of all the other stuff going on. Help us to trust in you that we may hear from you. Give us a peace in our hearts that we can be receptive to what you might say to us today. In your name we pray. Amen. There are, um, oh, I seem to have lost that. <laughs> That's fine. So, through the, um, <laughs> through the, um, Book of Romans, there are numerous themes that go through. One of the themes that we're, we're going to be looking at, we looked last week, well, is the theme of what might call there's an apocalyptic side to the book of Romans. Now, when I say apocalyptic, we automatically think about the end of the world. That's really not what it means. It's talking about this conflict between good and evil and the outcome of the conflict. And so throughout Romans is this conflict between good and evil, or what we should say, the spiritual realm of God and the spiritual realm, the powers of darkness. And these are competing realms. And what Paul's telling us is the first realm, the, the, the evil side we're gonna see is the realm of Adam. We looked at last week, the Adam of sin, the realm of Adam, sin, and death. And then what we're going to see this is the, the good side, which is the realm of Jesus, life, resurrection, and grace. So throughout the book, this battle's going on. Now, you know, think of X-Files or Stranger Things, if, if you're in any of that kind of stuff. You know why that's so popular? Not because it's real but because there is something real that it's mimicking in one sense. There is a real behind the scenes, behind the curtain conflict going on for this world, for people's lives. And Paul wants to bring us into that. What he's been telling us is that the power of sin and death, the realm of Adam, has been defeated by the power of grace, overwhelmingly defeated. At the very end of last week, he says that, so, as sin abounds all the more, as, no, as sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. So overwhelmingly, grace is overwhelmingly more powerful than sin. And so Paul, as we go to chapter 
6 now, verse 1 and 2. You may need a Bible. It's not, there it is. Great, we got it. He has a concern. And, and people, he, they hear him talking about, you know, sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. And so he, he says, he says, what shall we say then? Because people are saying this. Are we to continue in sin that grace might increase? They're saying, hey, this is pretty good. <laughs> and then he says, of course, may it never be. How shall we who die to sin still live in it? That last line. Of course, we, we all know, may it never be. But then he says, how shall we who died to sin still living in it? still live in it. We are dead to sin. Sin has no power over us. This is theologically true and positionally true about all of us. But in our real lives, it sure doesn't feel true. Our experience of this is often lacking. Sometimes it's like, yeah, oh, wow, I got it. But then it seems like it doesn't take long for it to come right back. And it's often the same thing. We're the same couple of things that we just keep struggling with. Now, the word sin is used about 50 times in the book of Romans. That's a lot of times. In this chapter 6, it's, it's a bunch, and I didn't highlight each time it's up there. There's one thing really important about what Paul, when Paul talks about sin in Romans. 45 of the times, he talks about it in the singular. Now, only three times does he use the word sins, plural. And he only uses a singular here in chapter six. Okay, well that's kind of cool. What does that mean? And have you ever heard preachers, usually they're talking about other preachers, because preachers can do this, pastors, whatever you want to call it. They can be on the radio or maybe, you know, we'll say, we don't ever talk about sin anymore in church. Okay, have you ever heard that? I, I hear it all the time. I, I don't know, maybe you haven't. And there are, and, and what they're saying when they say that is we don't talk about people's specific sins anymore in church. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> that was good. Um, um, <coughs> Sorry. You're well, that's fine. Now I'm going to get my head straight. <laughs> <laughs> and I think sometimes there can be an obsession on specific sins. But Paul, and, and let me say this there are times to talk about specific sins without question. Without question, there are times to do that. But what Paul's talking about here, when he talks about sin, singular, he's talking about the human condition. He's talking about this evil power that reigns through death and enslaves humanity called sin. 
Now, why that is so important is this, is I think that the reason we don't, our lived experience is not being free from sin. Why we don't experience freedom from sin is because we focus on the specific sins we struggle with. Now that sounds so, now, what do you mean? But I think what Paul wants us to do is he wants us to understand that this struggle is with sin, the human condition, this power that enslaves. And that that has been utterly defeated. And as we zero in on that, we're going to look at how to make that a reality in our lives, especially in areas that we struggle with consistently. It's all of us have those. So I'm just going to go through Romans 6 and look at a few things that will help with this. And it's all tied back to this understanding that sin has been defeated. We are no longer slaves to it. It no longer reigns in our lives. The first thing that will help us on a practical level to live as it said here, dead to sin, but then, and it's really important we go, that this verse says, how's well, but we'll stop there. First thing is baptism. Now, you're probably thinking, well, I wasn't thinking that that has anything to do with me not living in, you know, struggling with this area of my life. What does baptism have to do with it? Well, go to the next slide. It says this. Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore we have been buried with him through baptism into death, in order that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. How do you walk in newness of life? Through baptism. Now, here's the question. Is, and this is what I asked, is Paul talking about the ritual or sacrament of baptism? Or is he talking about spiritual baptism in this verse? And so, by now you all know the answer to that, right? Yes. When I, yes, that is the answer to that. Yes, he's talking about sacrament of baptism. And he's talking about this spiritual thing that happens to us when we believe in Jesus. Now the reason we ask the question, which one is he talking about, and we get all concerned, is because there are so many different traditions relating to baptism, and they differ, and people argue about the right way to do it. You know, is it infant baptism, believer baptism? Is it dunking? Is it pouring? Is it frontwards or is it backwards? Is it one dunk? Is it three dunks? 
Is there an age limit or is there no age limit on who can get baptized? And the big one is, and this is just by a small group of Christians who say, well, you have to get baptized to be saved. And not only that, but you have to believe that your baptism is saving you. Now, we don't hold it out, so we're not even going to address that one. Believe salvation is about faith, believing in Jesus. The moment that happens, you are saved. Our focus should not be on how. You know, the New Testament, it talks a lot about people getting baptized. It never says anything about how it happened. They go into water, yes. That's all it ever tells us. John the Baptist, does it say? Did he dunk forwards or backwards or poor? Never says. Just doesn't tell us how he did it. Our focus needs to be on what. What is baptism? What does it do for us? And how does it work? So obviously there's these two aspects he's talking about. And the word baptism means to be simply immersed. And it was a common word. It wasn't, that it's not a religious word. And the key is right here. We are baptized in, in the second line, verse 3, into Christ Jesus. That's what matters most. You are immersed in Christ Jesus. When you get baptized, it's not about the dunking. It's about who you are being baptized into. It'd be helpful to know what they understood. The folks in Rome, the Roman church, when he said you're baptized into Christ Jesus, they weren't thinking, now is he talking about our spiritual baptism? Or is he talking about our ritual of baptism? He, they, they would have understood some things. And baptism in water, like, you know, was common practice in the Roman world in the first century. Now, we don't have baptism other than in church, right? They had it in all kinds of things. Well, the Jews, they had two forms of baptism, immersion, and the first one is, um, they did, it was a purification ritual or rite. So before going into the temple, they had pools set up all around the temple, built in, and they would walk down into the pool to purify themselves before entering the temple. And then second, we have the baptism of John, a baptism for repentance. So they practice it in the Jewish faith. The Jews practice it in the first century. A second group, the pagan religious, pagan religions in Rome, some of them, baptism was an initiation ritual. It was, it was a sign of you becoming a member of that cult, you would go through baptism. Trade unions, or trade guilds, they would have been called, also used baptism, some of them, as a form of becoming a member of that union. Sometimes baptisms were used in coronation ceremonies for rulers. And if a 
slave was purchased or traded, they would, the new owner would baptize the slave to indicate that that person now belonged to that master. Their significance, it, Paul's going to bring into this the significance and implication of baptism ritual, that the implications of it are real, not just symbolic. And that what we would call spiritual and the ritual work together in this. Here are the implications for us. First, baptism is a transfer of loyalty and allegiance. Like the slave, it tells us who we belong to. We're baptized into who? <clears throat> Jesus. That's where our allegiance is and our loyalty is to Jesus. Only Jesus. Solely Jesus. Now, for us slave master, that, that, that language doesn't work as well in our culture. So I, I would say, here's a good way of thinking about that will affect all, I think we can all relate to, is baptism is like a pledge of allegiance. That's what baptism is. It is a pledge of allegiance. And we need to ask, when we come to faith in Christ, we are pledging allegiance to one and one only, Jesus. For the Romans, those alive in the Roman world, when they pledged allegiance to Jesus, it meant forsaking every other allegiance. And it was serious to them because you could not pledge allegiance to Jesus and be a Roman citizen, a Roman. You were denying all that Rome was. <coughs> And all that sees, all were required to pledge allegiance to Rome and to Caesar. The second thing is a transfer of identity and status. So in their world, when this would happen, they would, like if you were baptized for joining a trade union, well, your status went up. It was a way of climbing the corporate ladder. And same thing, you, you're becoming a part of this other religion as a member. Your, your status, your identity rose as a result of that. You were elevated. But for the Christians, by being baptized into Christ, your status went down to the lowest level. You were marginalized, you became an outsider in the Roman world, but your identity then was found in Christ in heaven. So really you were lifted up to a new world. And then third, it's an initiation into a new community. For them, your identity, your community was kind of set for you based on your family. In our world, we are able to divide our communities. We have family community, we have work community, we have church community, we have 
school. You know, we have all these different communities and we're separated amongst them all. Well, it didn't work that way in their world. You had a community. Those were your people. That's, that's really all you had. For us, you know, we, we can do things very differently. What we need to see from this, when we become a Christian, we don't leave all those other communities, right? We don't have to. We can still remain connected. But being baptized into Christ means that this becomes a, the, the community, and that's hard. It doesn't mean your family isn't your priority. And in their world, the family all weren't together. Now, Jesus did say for some, their enemy, their family members would become their enemies because of following him. But in general, the family went together. What we need to learn how to do is then kind of see the church like we see our family. So when we get together on Sunday mornings, we need to think, oh, it's a family gathering. But a lot of us, because families live all over the place, you know, two or three times a year we have an all-family gathering, or once a year. We, we, for those in that, we know what that's like. How important those times are. How special that is, and how you want it to go just right. Well, we, and, and what that's like, it's just gathering, and we need to think of church in that way. It's like we would with our family. It is hard to give ourselves in a church situation in that way. Let's move on here. So in verse 5 he says, For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall, also, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him that our body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. What he says here, we're in his likeness, we're baptized into his death, into his resurrection, and that means that our old self was crucified. We all have this old self. We know what our old self looks like. We don't like what it looks like. But it's been crucified. It's dead. Our body of sin is done away with. We are no longer slaves to sin. Because anyone who's died is free. We are free from sin. Now, <clears throat> that sounds great. But again, it's hard to make it our experience. When I think of slave to sin, I think of addiction. But then as I was going through this, I thought, are they the same thing? And I thought, well, it depends on the addiction, doesn't it? So let's put it this way. I bet that at least one or two of you are addicted at some level to caffeine. I am. 
Yeah. <laughs> At some level. Now, does that mean I'm a slave to sin? I, I don't think so. You know, our medical world, from a lack of understanding, I don't know, decades ago, started just giving people pain pills. Right? Created huge issues with addiction. Do you look at a person like that and think, oh, you're a slave to sin? I'm not sure I would say yes to that. I would say no to that. Now, there are all kinds of addictions. Some of them we might say, no, sounds like slave to sin to me, but some of them, right? There are great resources, all like Alcoholics Anonymous and all these things, that do a fantastic job that are really important to help people with addictions. But here's why this is important. A person who does not follow Christ, who has not been baptized into Christ, can overcome addictions through a really helpful program, an important program, still be a slave to sin. Still be a slave to sin. And a Christian who is freed from sin can still have addictions. And that's why I think it is so important for us to focus on our freedom from sin, singular, and not put all of our attention on our specific sins. Next slide, verse 8. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Look at, said we have, this, the died part is past tense. The next part is present and future. It goes on, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again, death no longer is master over the death that he died, past, past, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Believing that, now let's just go to the next slide where it says it. I'm not, let's let Paul say it. Even so. So you are dead to sin and alive to God. That's true about all of us. We are all dead to sin and alive to God. And then Paul says, it's okay. He's laid this out over and over again. This is true about you, even so. And here's the kicker. Consider yourself to be dead to sin. Consider, some say, reckon yourself. Reckon it to be true. Understand that it's true. Consider it to be true. That you are dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. This is, when we talk about how do we experience freedom from sin, it all starts here. It all begins with this. This is where we must go with this. 
We've been baptized into his death and raised with him. Now we go to the next slide, verse 12. Therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey its lust. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourself to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace. Okay. The most practical thing that we must do is consider ourselves dead to sin alive to God. That's the most important thing. But now he goes into some, okay, so here's, here's some, we, don't, we want steps, which is fine. Here's your steps. And he says, don't present yourself to sin because you're dead to it, but present yourself to God. So this, I think this goes back to the whole, we've talked about this, put on and put off. We, we know that. We have to put off one thing and put on the other thing. So I'm going to close with an example. I'm going to use the example of anger. Because plenty of people have a problem with anger and and you know it's kind of an acceptable problem in one sense you know people aren't unwilling to admit it and so we'll use that one so how do we put it off how do you put off anger and, and I'd say here's first thing is this is understanding to put off anger we need to understand the source of anger and we have an example really early on in the Bible it's like in chapter 4, I think. And it's Cain. Cain and Abel gave offerings, and God accepted Abel's and not Cain's. And God came to him and he said, Why are you downcast? Why is your countenance fallen? Why are you so angry? And then he said this. If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted. And then he said, but if not, sin, singular, is crouching at your door. It's waiting to pounce on you. First source is sin. This human condition, this evil power in our world. <coughs> And then the second source, and these two go together, is anger is an inappropriate response, emotional response, to past wounds, being wronged in the past, being neglected, being disrespected, being disappointed. So to, and, and you know, many different things. So to put off anger, we need to go back, recognize the source of sin, and whatever it is, the things that took place in our lives that we are angry about, that then cause us to respond to others in anger. And then after, and with that, sometimes you need somebody to help you through that. Help you to identify those things. 
help you to work this so you can put anger off. Not just, oh, I'm going to work really hard putting off. Not going to do it anymore. You need to address the causes. But it's not enough to do that. Then what we need to do is we need to put on Christ. We need, we, it needs to move to from, I'm dead to sin. I'm dead to sin, yes, to no, but just stop there. Not going to work. You need to move to being alive to God. And so to put on Christ, to live out our baptism, simply means to put on the attitudes, the behavior, the activities, the practices, and the character of Jesus in our own lives. So when it comes to anger, this Bible is really clear what God is like when it comes to anger, and it's, he always uses the word, he is slow to anger. He is slow to anger. That's what we need to put on. And then James gives us a way of doing that. James is not, and I don't have this verse up there, but he says, this you know, but let everyone be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. So he gives us two practices to teach us to be slow to anger. And, and I think it is just so important. I, Navy SEALs have this little saying. They say, when the pressure is on, people don't rise to the occasion. They sink to the level of their training. We need to train ourselves by using practices in these areas that we are trying to deal with in our lives. And I have found the best is to find small little things like, and this James giving it, like, that everyone be quick to hear. So when you're in that crunch situation at work or in your family with your spouse or whatever, it's just, it's learning before you get into that. How can I be quick to hear today? I've got to work on that. I, I can be quick to speak. And so I need to think, how, what, what little practices can I begin doing to be quick to hear and slow to speak. I shared this in the past, and I'll mention it. The issue of patience was one I had to work on. And I started a simple little practice, because the car is one place people tend to be impatient. I've shared this many times, but I just started telling myself, every single time I got in the car, I would tell myself, you are not in a hurry. Not going to what? You are not in a hurry. And just learn, I'm, I'm done. And it was a simple little thing. But it, when he says to present yourself, your members, as to righteousness, we need to just, whatever the areas are we're working on, 
find little things so because if what you're doing is just waiting for the temptation to come up, you're not gonna succeed. Unless you have a series of practicing beforehand. And close with the last slide there, if you would, Patty. So after doing all this, we still find ourselves failing. For sin, he says, shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. We always need to remember that. We are not under law. Because we will still have some sins take hold of us. And there we need to say we are under grace. And then 520 says the law came in so that the transgression would increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So when sin increases, what do we do then? Grace abounds all the more. It just does. He just abounds in his grace for us. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. Help us to live in your grace. And not under the condemnation, the slavery that we've been freed from. Thank you for freeing us. Teach us how to live into that freedom which we already possess. In your name we pray. Amen. <coughs>
trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Amen. 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 So we are going to have dinner, um, lunch together today. And what we're going to do is in about, in 10 minutes, we're all going to go downstairs. And before we have dinner, we're going to sit table and we're going to break bread together at the tables down there. So, um, um, so 10 minutes, if anybody has, wants to discuss, share anything, feel free to. 